I believe the more common theme is that you come in feeling like you have an insurmountable amount of problems or issues and with time and and some hard work you can leave therapy feeling like you can manage anything folks welcome to counselors can help let's demystify the process of counseling we want to remove barriers answer your questions educate entertain and inspire you to action folks today on counselors can help we're going to get into some interesting discussions. I'm going to introduce you to Liza Telford. You're going to love her and you're going to love our conversations, specifically starting with couples counseling. We want to give you hope on a very common problem. Lastly, in the show, we'll discuss panic and really a scenario that is in more people's lives than we're led to believe. It's a very common problem and hope to give you some hope on that front. All right, so we're back to uh, Counselors Can Help. And I want to welcome today to the show, Liza Telford. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> this is exciting. Liza and First I are time neighbors. time in this chair. We're, in, we're neighbors. We actually work hall. We have an adjoining uh, wall, I guess, for our counseling uh, offices. So uh, we're next next to each other. Don't see each other much. I would say that's fair, right? No, I feel like we are like the literal poster child for if the walls could talk. <laughs> right. We would have quite a story to right. tell between the two of us. Yeah. Yeah, so we're doing our thing in sort of separate offices, I guess. And um, I thought, uh, I think uh, you will enjoy Liza's uh, commentary, et cetera, because um, in today's show, we're going to discuss a couple of, I guess, scenarios, what, what stops people from coming to counseling. And the first one is to deal with her specialty, and that's very familiar with couples, couples counseling. Yes. So this is a pretty common thing. I mean, would you say, I don't know, or what a third or what, what, what sort of percentage of folks that you see are couples roughly in my personal yeah. practice about a third okay mm-hmm. all right. would That's be accurate probably what I guess so yeah it's it's not uncommon at all what's the scenarios that are sort of normal or typical that people come in with uh, what does that what does that look like from your perspective Yeah, that's actually a really good question because when I began practicing um, I had this idea I really wanted to work with couples and then you begin working with couples and instead of taking one personality or one set of energy coming in a room you're getting two and you are being thrown into a very private relationship or jumping into with both feet honestly to help kind of make sense of chaos or whatever they're experiencing and for me Meryl one of the very uh, most primary fundamental things about couples therapy is it's really normal to have one person that's more motivated to be there. Yeah. That is really common <laughs> that yeah. one of you is ready for change and the other one, maybe they, they've given up. Maybe they feel fearful of what does that mean about me? What am I going to discover? Um, I get blamed at home. So how would yeah. that be any different in a therapy office? Someone is being drug in. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> or there's been, yeah, some sort of ultimatum of if not or else. Yeah. And it's, let me guess, it's it's usually fairly, I guess, easy to see who the 
four person is who wants to be there and the person who is a little less enthusiastic. Yes, that's, that's a pretty... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm going to try and stay away from broad stereotypes, but in my experience, it's often the female, the woman. If it's a heterosexual couple, it's often the female that is motivating, motivated to be there. Um, and I wish I knew why that was. I'm more willing to talk about feelings, has seen that discussing feelings has gone somewhere for them. Um, And and I've definitely seen it the other way around, but I would say the majority of the time, a husband feels somewhat dragged in. Okay. So what you're saying is there's somewhat of a setup that when you sit down with them for the first time, you sort of have a sense of, okay, this is probably how we're starting here. Not mm-hmm. always. Not always. Mm-hmm. And I will usually say, um, well, I, I will usually say something like, um, let me know what happened to that one of you said the sentence, we've got to see someone right now. We've got to do something okay. right yeah. now. So that gets into the why now. What's mm-hmm. Why are you here today and you didn't come two mm-hmm. months ago or three mm-hmm. months ago? There's usually, and obviously with time and scheduling, there's been a time lapse of, but there's usually an event of we need to do something about this. Right. Somebody was caught doing something. Somebody could, said something. Could be infidelity. It could be the hundredth time you've had that conversation. And okay. 98 was okay. And a hundred is not. Yeah. And most couples um, will come in and, uh, within the first session, we'll identify a pattern of the way they communicate. And nine times out of 10, Meryl, that will be the first thing that a couple says to me is we cannot communicate. Right, right. And you can see, I guess, how they communicate even then who's sort of the wants to be here, who doesn't, or or maybe I can see right away what the problem is. Not necessarily, I guess, the content of what they're talking about, but mm-hmm. somebody is really loud or somebody is sort of shut down or... Mm-hmm. how they're reacting to each other. I yes. Guess. And I ask them to replay a recent argument or something, or just kind of let it unfold in my office, which usually will happen. And I work from a emotionally focused therapy frame okay. uh, based on attachment theory. And with that, you quickly discover what are called pursuers and withdrawers. And just the way we um, almost like to just be really simple about it, the way we fight or yeah. the way we disagree. If something does feels like a threat or feels like confrontation, am I going to tap your shoulder and say, no, we're going to do this right now. We're going to talk about it right now. That would be a pursuer. Mm-hmm. Or am I going to be a withdrawer? And if I withdraw as confrontation arises, I'm just going to shut down and move back. Yeah. And the key is to get a couple to believe that neither one is wrong. Yeah. Neither one is their fault. It's the way they communicate. Yeah. They both have the same goal, but the pursuer it wants to sort of get after it. And the other person is like, this conflict makes me uncomfortable or I always get blamed here or we're eventually exactly. going to wind up in some swirling pit of it's all my fault somehow. And so why discuss this? Because I wind up being... Because we sort of, we have a pattern and yeah. we have a dance that we do as yeah. a couple, and everyone has a dance, 
And if we can take the shame out of or the feeling of uh, that I'm doing it wrong or that this is my fault that we do this or she or he is going to tell me it's my fault, if I can ease that and just help them see they're not idiots, this is a pattern, Everyone communicates yeah. and then we can take it really, you would be surprised what happens with the less motivated party. They're just a lot more, if I can get to a state of validation for them, of it's not that what we're doing is wrong. It's just that it's not recognizable to the other person. Yeah. I bet there's some state of like almost embarrassment too when people come in. It's like, oh my God, it's gotten to this. Where did we go wrong how did we get here and it does feel it feels completely overwhelming to a lot of couples oh. that fear exactly as you described that fear keeps most couples from doing something about communication issues yeah is i'm going this is going to be excruciating this is going to be and i do my very best we laugh i i try really hard to be like let's Look at this shit show. And <laughs> right. Or they come in saying. Maybe we'll be editing that out. But we'll, <laughs> let's like, let's look at the mess and let's, let's lay out what's going well for you and why the hell you got together in the first place. Right. Yeah. And then let's see where we are falling into that same pattern. Yeah. Or some people may come and they, they want you to declare a winner. Oh, <laughs> so you've done couples therapy. And you know what? That is In your professional really opinion, is good. he right or wrong? In your professional opinion, would this not drive you nuts? That's usually what I hear. And again, in that, I told you I wasn't going to do stereotypes, but being a female therapist, I think that's incredibly important that I establish that there is a fourth person in the room. There's the couple. There's me and there's the relationship. And that relationship is the client in the room. Right. That's the most important piece. And once we kind of establish that, if I can get a um, husband who feels withdrawn and unheard to just be like, this is, this is okay. No one's going to blame yeah. you here. We're just going to talk through what's working, what's not. Yeah. And as a therapist, your job is to make sure that both people feel like you're not on a side. Exactly. Right? That you're not like, oh, you know, if once, as soon as the other person starts to get a sense of what are, oh, I see what's going on here. And now it's a two versus one thing. Exactly. Know? And I, you hear that, you will hear that. Um, I, the way I do couples work is I will bring a couple in together and then I do at least one session with one person or the other, not because we're going to keep secrets from each other, but sometimes I have found that it's really important that you hear backstory yeah. on the way that person, how did their system work growing up and what do they bring to this new family system? And, and then you do that with each couple and you can get a much more solid therapeutic relationship with yeah. both sides. Well, and get the unvarnished truth, I guess. What is their real, mm -hmm. where are they coming from? Because if you just hear one person's perspective, you, when you meet the other, the one you haven't met or talked to, you're like, oh my, what, what, what's coming in here? You know, and you've only got sort of the, many of the sort of the worst qualities, I guess, or worst, mm -hmm. worst, um, uh, scenarios of what they think that relationship mm -hmm. is or what's going on and trying to, okay, the other person has a perspective too, and it's not evil or all bad or 
maybe exactly. everything that the other person said it said it was. Right. Honestly, opening up the scary door of we all have a perspective. Everyone has a lens. You have heard it this way from your partner for all this time. You're hearing their lens. Um, what do you bring to the table? And have just having a third party look at that can be extremely enlightening if you're willing yeah. to go there. Or even I was thinking of, of people too, maybe they're on their second or third marriage and this one's in trouble. And so they're coming in thinking, okay, it's, it's, it must be me. I, it must be I, me. I guess I'm just not cut out for this mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. There's a lot of fear that goes in and a new couple can be triggered by things that they experienced mm -hmm. in their previous relationships. And so you're getting into the weeds there, Meryl. We're, <laughs> we're just talking about what but, keeps couples from coming into therapy. I do want to give you just a, what's t what to typically expect. Yeah. And, and really it is uh, figuring out how you communicate. People say to me, I could pretty much set my clock in a session to within the first 20 minutes when I say, tell me about why you're here today. Then one of the two of them will say, we cannot communicate. And I always say back, you absolutely are. It's just that one of you is speaking Greek and one of you is speaking <laughs> Spanish. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what's, is there a, a story that you could bring to bring out that would say, this is a couple that came in they saw these types of issues and this is sort of where it turned or maybe what's any surprising things that happened in the middle of all that, in the middle of therapy. Mm -hmm. One couple stands out particular, which is not an uncommon theme, but uh, the speed of success that they saw with what they originally came in with oh, okay. was amazing to me because as they would describe, they'd actually um, separated. They'd moved out of um, the family home or the hus husband had moved out and um, they were living separated under a trial basis of, we will try couples therapy in separate homes. <laughs> and so I joined them at that point. So they weren't thinking of th this was already done. And when they initially came in, they said, we can't communicate and we are tired of that. And we have different visions and we married young and we, we just don't have anything in common anymore. It's over. It's over. The wife was particularly motivated to, um, give it one last shot. They'd never gone to counseling and it felt to her that they couldn't get a divorce unless they had tried okay. in quotes counseling. Yeah. Although I don't believe in their case, either one was particularly hopeful that it would do anything. Yeah, They had no real expectations, but felt it was worth doing. So felt it was worth doing for their children is what often I hear as well that we owe that to them mm -hmm. to try to make this partnership work. So um, we began with the pattern and what works, what's, what's working, why did we originally get together, what do we like about this relationship? And to be completely honest, Meryl, it wasn't very much at the beginning. And it felt um, 
insurmountable to both of them, but I felt hopeful, which was probably this most underlying peace. And I get this from John and doctors, John and Julie Gottman, but their underlying piece of respect for each other as human beings and as, um, just having a right to be respected, um, the Gottmans would call it a basic floor of love and admiration. And you might not have the love there at that moment, <laughs> but just mutual respect right. and admiration for another person. And that I find is a really critical piece. So you're just, you're just sort of witnessing that you're not mm -hmm. saying, Oh, uh, notice how you did this or whatever, but you're just seeing that, Oh, these seem to, these people seem to have more in common or more belief in each other mm -hmm. than they're letting on here. They were living in separate households and able to say to me um, really respectful things about each other instead of blaming each other, which Gottman would call one of the four horsemen mm -hmm. of divorce, of the apocalypse, <laughs> but of divorce is blaming. When we speak to someone, do we use lots of you language and um, lots of why? Why did you do that? Which when I say to you, when I look you in the eye, Meryl, and say to you, why did you do that? Are you automatically bullet pointing in your mind reasons why you did something? You're kind of trying to come up with yeah, like a defense. Defense, exactly. So um, with this couple, there was very little, there, there will always be some defensiveness, but they just had this mutual respect for each other. Like this may not work. We're going to give it a shot, but okay, here is what it is. And over the course of about three months, so I would say 12 sessions, 12, 16, somewhere in there, um, between establishing our pattern of how we communicate, mm -hmm. what we um, say to each other, how do we recognize support from our partner? A, a withdrawer might see support as leaving me alone when I'm frustrated and a pursuer would say, don't leave me alone. Let's solve it. It doesn't look like support for you to withdraw from me. It, it looks the opposite. And so just having a basic understanding of like, what does support look like to my spouse and recognizing, uh, need, the need is pretty critical. And once you feel like you have an understanding of how your spouse has or recognizes mm -hmm. something support or love which i mean how many books have we seen about that what is their love language what is this what right. is are you a toucher yes <laughs> what is, and i mean people make millions of dollars on books about love language yeah. but the truth is what is that capturing what is the essence of yeah. understanding someone else's love language it's that i can recognize that i matter to my person. Yeah. So while you're talking, I was just thinking, I mean, part of what therapy is, is really these concepts aren't even that complicated. <gasps> That's exactly what I was getting <laughs> to. I'm doing it in a very roundabout way, but exactly when I, when someone lays out for me a laundry list of things we can't, things we can't do, ways we can't communicate, they, they can look really un insurmountable. Yeah. And really overwhelming. And if we 
boil it down. I think of water boiling down to the bottom of the pot. Can we boil it down all the way to what is really happening here? And it's that I don't feel like I matter to this person. Yeah. And so what I'm thinking about couples who don't come in or don't want to come in or may think like, well, well, we'll read a Sue Johnson book or, you know, we'll sort of figure it out on our own. The benefit of having that other party is you can see these patterns like just sitting in your chair, like within seconds, probably. Yes. To be able to say, this is what I see. Do you guys see this? Uh, and taking the shame out of it. Honestly, that's the difference. You can, you can read the book and there will be lots of help in that. And if you can not let your nervous system get involved and when your husband rolls his eyes at you, not be triggered right. to pursue or withdraw, <laughs> then great. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. But most of the time we are, when someone says, well, he just shuts down and goes away, we can get to the bottom instead of shaming them. But what does that feel like inside of him? Oh, it means that I'm doing something wrong. He's able to find the words because there's a third party in there and you're not reacting to your nonverbal right. with each other. You're reacting to this third person going, there's no shame in that, but yeah. let's figure out what's underneath that. Yeah. So it's less learning new things necessarily, but more just seeing it from another person's eyes, what's really mm -hmm. going on and going, oh, I didn't realize I did that or I didn't know I was doing it that way or... I was totally missing that as a, as a concept, I guess. Well, Absolutely. This, so this couple you mentioned that was living apart, what, how did they, how did that end? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> in a very short amount of time, all I initially asked of them is that they would spend, and, and w I have a process, but a date a week, just enjoying each other's company, not doing a million other things. We're not going to solve anything. Finances. No. Yeah. Just enjoy each other's company. Remember why you got married. And maybe even if you're celebrating that that's not happening anymore, celebrating the end of that. I, I didn't put any stipulations on it needs to look a certain way. And with time of them backing out, um, I went to a marriage conference that described this as people will ask a counselor, well, I just, I don't feel like the way we did when we were on a second date. I want to feel like I did when I was on a second date. And I say to them, this therapist suggested saying, well, behave like you're on a second date then. When's the last time that you looked at your partner, you know, and like really looked at them as they came in the door from work and had like two minutes where there wasn't the chaos of this or the anger of work or something else, but where you were like excited to see them. So there through that process of figuring out um, where, what they recognize as support, understanding their pattern. I do a lot of Gottman work in the safe house is what the safe sound house is what the Gottmans call it. And it's basically levels of a house and what makes a healthy marriage. And what I love about Gottman work is they're realistic. People are going to have fights. People are going to disagree. You are human. You are supposed to. And it means you care. It means you care. And by doing and normalizing that and honestly having a very simple 
mathematical ratio of five positives to one negative interaction, suddenly the positives in your experience and in your partnership outweigh the negative. And instead of it being the opposite, where you're having so many negative interactions, you can't remember the positive, you start flipping that. And suddenly that insurmountable list starts to diminish of like, oh, I'm going to let that one go. Oh, that one's not as big a deal. Oh, we can work through that. I can have hard conversations with my spouse and it's nobody's fault. Yeah. We didn't change sort of necessarily what we're discussing or fighting about. We just changed sort of the the whole mechanism just exactly right we changed the dance different habits different remembering to do more positive things and less i guess dwelling on some of the negative probably so exactly right <laughs> <laughs> that would be level four yeah but this kind of success is is pretty life-changing for two people right they thought yeah. their lives were going in completely different directions R really quite prepared upon coming into therapy to make separate lives and I am not going to tell you that that is typical to start out in a separated home and come back together. But within six months, they have moved back in together. They continue in counseling and they are even more respectful, even more they have, but they have what's added to the respect for a human being is love, admiration, and uh, positive influence and all the things that make a healthy relationship still with their same personalities still feeling like he you know likes to make decisions about uh, overspending and she is very tied to a budget or whatever the thing is you're yeah. still going to have that yeah but in the end a, a life-changing thing was accomplished with the start of an idea that, well, we'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. We don't think it's all that possible, but we can do it and let's just go give it a try. And, mm -hmm. and that story that you've just outlined really isn't that, I mean, like you mentioned, it's maybe sort of um, unusual, like where it started, where it began. Mm -hmm. um, but the ending isn't that unusual that people can see a completely different perspective with some work and some effort and some time. Right. I, believe the more common theme is that you come in feeling like you have an insurmountable amount of problems or issues and with time and and some hard work you can leave therapy feeling like you can manage anything the list is still there do you still have differing ideas on yeah. money on raising children on religion, on politics, on any number of things. How do we communicate? The way, the style, the tone really can affect the way we communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a sort of a, a third person, I guess, to, to help you with that. Next, we're going to talk about a scenario that is more individual but is, I guess, no less life-changing for people, and that is a panic disorder or some sort of panic attacks. Folks, in today's helping segment, we want to teach you how to find a counselor. The first and most obvious place people turn is an internet search. If you want to get a more specific tool for that and, a, I think, a better tool, go to counselorscanhelp.com. 
click on the link. I want to find a counselor and we'll put up some tools there to help you uh, with your search either locally or nation nationwide. Primary Care Doctor is also a good place to start looking for a therapist. They have some names of folks they have dealt with over time and can give you some good recommendations there. Friends and family are never a bad place to, to ask. Generally, people have good experiences. They're willing to pass those along. The Employee Assistance Program at Work is also a great place to ask. There may be specific work requirements that you deal with or specific things you're worried about in your profession or field. Uh, your employer may have a great line on some therapists. Another resource, since people think about or are afraid of how they're going to pay for these services, is your insurance company. You could give them a call and see what therapists they work with in the local area. The last more scary scenario is certainly if you or a loved one are really in danger, physical danger of harming yourself. 911 is a great place to start for that, but there are more specific resources you can do generally in your local area there are crisis hotlines all over the nation give them a call they can work you through the initial crisis of what's happening as well as generally they're very knowledgeable in the local area they can help you with resources to get the help you need ultimately we're trying to make counselors can help a great resource for you to quickly and efficiently get the help you're looking for Okay, coming back to counselors can help. We're going to talk about a, a another scenario where by somebody in their life has basically been functioning reasonably well. They've got a job, they've things have been happening, and all of a sudden that changes one day and they wind up having panic attacks. And this can be pretty overwhelming. Uh, and in fact, it looks like, again, that sort of idea of this is insurmountable. A person comes in and they really, what this can look like in why did I come in? I've lost my job. Maybe a couple comes in. One, one person is saying the other person has changed in every way. They've shut down. They don't do what they used to do anymore. And the person that there is there to get help is essentially traumatized and frightened. Mm. They're in a belief that nothing can help. This is like the last ditch thing for the most part. They've been to the doctor circuit. The, the person who's there has probably been put in an MRI tube multiple times because they don't understand why this stuff is happening to them. And they're frightened, absolutely frightened with almost zero belief that what they're coming in to do is even going to help. And so the other thing I, I guess I would add to that is they're pretty exhausted. They've tried everything. Pills, uh, like I said, all the doctors thinking they had a brain tumor. I mean, they've been down the list. And they don't know what else to do uh, to the point where uh, it's not unusual for one spouse to basically come in and say, I've taken over. The other person is nothing like they used to be. And, and we don't know why. We can't explain it. Hope you can help. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great first sentence. Yeah. So I guess I, I want to lay this scenario out there because I think it's actually more common than people believe. I think they, they lay it on 
they sort of lay it on like, uh, oh, he had a nervous breakdown or, you know, maybe the person then turns to some sort of drug or addiction. I think a lot of addictions start at that point mm-hmm. because the person simply cannot cope and they don't know what else to do. They have zero answers to how this is ever going to change. And so they turn to drinking or, you know, whatever else. So how do we, I guess, how do we help them or what's the, what's the answer uh, for them? So I guess my, my first answer or what I try to do in the office is offer some sort of hope that this, there is a, there's a solution here. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty close to this one. This is, this is my story. Uh, So it makes me upset when people get to this state because I guess I feel a special connection to them. And so I want it to be, I want them to know that it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. So what do we do? You know, where, what's the plan, Stan? (laughs) (laughs) I, I, referencing your first or your introduction podcast and you being willing to share your own story I listened to that and it resonated with me. The sentence you said was when people choose this field, and I don't have a statistic, but many choose this field because they've had a personal experience. And I believe that you sharing that, that your personal experience, I, I was a hundred percent with you on that, that it's my own story and my own work that I did that made me choose this field. So number one, when you have somebody that you can look in the eye and say, I understand. I, even if the experience is a little bit different, but the sentiment, the feeling of, I do not know what to do here. And I am really hopeful you have some idea of what to do of a plan. I kind of think as a pilot for you, I think of a flight plan, like hopping on a plane with a pilot. I am really hopeful that that guy sitting up there has a clue how to read the instruments and has a plan. And I bank on that. I came and sat in the chair thinking they know that I need to get here and what that looks like, how much time it's going to take. There might be some turbulence, but they can say there might be some turbulence, but I'm, we're going to get you through it. We have a flight plan. Yeah. And I believe that's what therapy can offer you Yeah, is a flight plan. The plan. And I think people come with the idea that we believe that we are perfect or that there's some sort of like, we have it over them when really the fact is most people get into therapy because they have some sort of backstory. They have mm-hmm. some sort of thing traumatic whatever could be a family member sort of how they grew up you name it where they looked at that situation and we're looking for answers we're looking for their own answers Mm -hmm. and that's how they got into this field Mm -hmm. i think if we dug my my sense is it's 80 to 90 percent of the people who are therapists i would not disagree have a a story (laughs) at least the best ones i'm actually suspect of the 10 or 20 percent who don't have a story i'm like come on Uh, come on (laughs) that doesn't sound right at all yeah in doing my own work i i dreamed when i was in a much healthier state of mind i dreamed of looking other people in the eye and being able to say 
I know that feeling. It's going to be okay. And you don't have to feel like this forever. Because specifically with depression, there is a complete and total false belief that I felt this way yesterday and I will feel this way tomorrow and forever. There is a, a lapse in time of when I will stop feeling this way or. Yeah. Well, in, in the case of panic in this, in this particular example, there's a belief that I am defective, that there's mm-hmm. some, something happened, some molecule came in and did what it does. And now I am no longer capable of living life as I did before. I have to, my world gets smaller. I stop going to the store. I stop going places. I stop having people over. I stop, you know, uh, anything that reminds me of panic. And it's really just, it's something that I think people, once they sort of hear the story and realize that they really just need to retrain themselves to, to all these situations that it's as simple as, and it sounds so dumb, but I say this a hundred times, we have to practice being anxious. Hmm. And so you're going to have to, over time, in small ways, get back to doing the things that you wanted to be doing that were meaningful to you. And how are you going to do that is you're going to practice doing those things, even though you are anxious, even though it is not going to feel comfortable. The original exposure yeah, therapy. It's, it's exposure to get technical, but it's, it's getting back to those things. The problem is not that you have anxiety or the problem is not that you have panic. The problem is you're not living your life. You've stopped doing all these things that are, that are meaningful, that are, that are enjoyable. Um, I sort of uh, related to the, to people who come into my office as it's a smoke detector in your house. That's going off 24 mm-hmm. seven. That's unacceptable, but we can fix the smoke detector. We can there's fix actually, the smoke detector. <laughs> there's actually a resolution for this. And you can actually appreciate a smoke detector <laughs> yeah. because that smoke detector does keep you from walking down the freeway. That, yeah, that's right. The smoke detector in the we case want of a, it. In the case of a house, yeah, we don't want to throw out the smoke detector. We want to re retune it, re mm-hmm. refigure out how to get it back to detecting smoke and not <laughs> just funny. We screeching use the same all the time. Analogy. <laughs> I use that a lot as your smoke detector in your home does not care if the house is on fire or you have burned toast. It's still going off. And if you can get to a place where you can recognize, oh, I mean, how many house fires are you actually in? Not many, ever. And how many times do you burn toast? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Can I see the difference between a raging house fire and just burnt toast? Mm-hmm. I still may get a reaction because I don't like the sound. It makes mm-hmm. me uncomfortable, makes me scared, but I know that this is going to be okay and I can work through it kind of thing. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good, that's a good way to describe it. Or, mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's parsing out the difference in your life because when people come in with this kind of thing, everything is a three alarm fire. Everything down to literally leaving the house. I often wondered when I started in this business, how, do, how does it get to where someone doesn't leave the house? Does it get that bad? And that's sort of the, the story here of, of why people come in or, mm-hmm. or want to get help. The, the success or the, again, the life-changing outcome of coming in to see somebody to get help with this is there's a path for it. There's a process. There's a way to do it that is actually quite mechanical. It's really not that complicated at all. It's actually kind of stupidly simple. (laughs) Isn't that often the answer, though? (laughs) We have this huge list of there's no way we can. This feels insurmountable. And it's how do you eat an elephant? 
Yeah, piece by piece. Completely. How do you, yeah, let's take it smaller, smaller, smaller. And it's not that we're smarter or, or we, we, you know, that kind of thing. It's more just someone's got to show you the process. It's just a bunch of simple things, and it's never been explained this way before. You've never sort of been described to you in this way before. You're not dumb. Mm-hmm. Everything you do, every, I tell everyone who comes in with, with a panic story, it's like everything you've done to this point makes 100% sense. Mm-hmm. You went to the doctor. I totally get it. <laughs> Why wouldn't you go to the doctor? This is unusual. This never happened before. Um, you stopped doing certain things that made you anxious. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't stop and want to make the pain stop kind of thing? Um, Normalize. Yeah. And, and what they find is that, oh, actually everything we've done to this point is actually made sense. We're doing the right thing. We just don't have the way out right. at this point. And so typically I find that these kind of people are, can really get their life back in a significant, significant way quite quickly, the same idea of coming in with almost sort of no hope at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, it's exactly the case. My personal story is that story. And I, and I don't mm-hmm. consider myself a remarkable human, like, oh, I was able to do some, like, wow, look at that. But I was able to go to a place of thinking my, basically my flying career was over. And a lot of parts of my life were going to be over significantly. And that's not different than the people I see fairly routinely in the office. They've made some pretty big decisions that they feel like are unchangeable. Mm -hmm. I now have to live a new way. I can't go back to that old me because that is just not possible. And once they sort of get the idea and get these simple techniques into mind, the story can change quite dramatically and and actually reasonably quickly, but it's not a, it's not a race. It's not a, it's not a hurry up and get this done kind of thing, uh, but it can be done. And I just want to, I guess, let people know that this is a very complicated story that can sound incredibly complex early on. And how can someone possibly help me with this to come in and talk about it? That sounds absurd, but it's actually quite yet, effective. <laughs> it is so effective. Yeah. And shockingly so. Um, so I, I guess I just want to leave people with that, with that idea. Folks, entertainment is a major part of this show. With that in mind, we leave you with some outtakes that we hope you'll enjoy. All right. Okay. Uh, Oh, are we still on? All right. Okay. Uh, That was super boring. Some Elvis? Okay. In my head, I'm thinking of how much of this story do I share. Still recording. Still recording. No, that was fine. No, I think. Our mission is to spread the word that counselors can help. We want to teach you how to get started and get the most out of therapy. We encourage you to reach out to a professional in your area to help yourself or a loved one. Thank you to Kelsey Fink, our production assistant and chief of technology and social media. Thanks to Aspire Counseling at AspireUT.com for their support. If you want to know more about how counselors can help, go to counselorscanhelp.com. We have lots of resources, information, and we update it all the time. Views expressed on the show are those of myself, my guests, for the benefit of mental health discussion and are not the views of any outside organization. We'll see you next time on Counselors Can Help, a production of Merge Publishing.